Well, good evening. I want to thank you for the pleasant and blessed time I've spent in your community. I remember the last time that way, and I'm going to remember this time the same way. It's been a blessed time to be together, and you've been a very good audience. Um, I will not be here to see how you live it out, and you won't be at Shippensburg to see how I live it out, <laughs> but I trust you will do that. Would you turn tonight to Matthew chapter 7? I told you that some people do not consider this part of the Sermon on the Mount. They consider the Sermon on the Mount just the first two chapters, 5 and 6. I think it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, but the reason they say that is because this is a realistic understanding of how to live out the first part. Remember I told you that we have to be idealists and realists at the same time. Those of you who were not here, we illustrated with the oyster that deposits a milky quartz on that realistic problem that comes in in the form of a piece of sand, and they finally, uh, the oyster finally makes a pearl out of what was trouble. And uh, somebody has said, wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. Well, Jesus is trying to tell us here how to do that, how to have wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble when there's a problem. Now, I'm going to illustrate from a, a war situation. Uh, Jesus did that. Uh, he talked about people going to war and making preparation. I want it understood. I'm not at all endorsing war. War is not God's purpose for his kingdom, and uh, we do not participate in any such thing. But this is a good illustration. The Civil War occurred in our area in 1863. It was the largest battle fought on American soil. It involved 165,000 soldiers, and there were 51,000 casualties. One-third of the Southern Army died at Gettysburg, and that should have been the end of the war. And it would have been the end of the war if General Meade had listened to Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln telegraphed frantically from the White House, destroy the Southern Army, do not let them escape. George Meade refused to obey, and he allowed the Southern Army to escape Gettysburg. As a result of that, the war dragged on for two more miserable years with a tremendous loss of life. Now, people begged Lincoln to court-martial and discipline and punish George Meade for his disobedience. But Lincoln refused to do that. He never did. He gave him a, an honorable discharge. And this was his reason. He said, I was not at Gettysburg those three horrible days, July 1, 2, and 3 of 1863. They were hot days. They were horrible days. It took two weeks for them to bury the bodies. The smell of that war was smelled for towns far in the distance. I can't imagine what it was like to even live in the town of Gettysburg at that time. So it was a horrible experience. And Lincoln said, I did not live through that. He said, if I had lived through uh, the screams and groans and, and horrors of dying men for three days, he said, I may not have had the heart to destroy a wounded army myself. So he said, I cannot judge George Meade. I'm not going to judge him because I was not in his place. Now, Lincoln, of course, was a president during war, and that's terrible. But there was another side to Lincoln. He had what people called a magnanimous heart. Now, the word magna in Latin means large. He was a large-hearted man. He was able to forgive people. Now, Jesus knew his followers would need magnanimous hearts. He was not a starry-eyed idealist. He was a realist and an idealist. 
He knew what was in man, John chapter 2, verse 25. He had learned obedience by the things which he suffered. I don't think that means he had to learn to obey God. I don't think he ever had any temptation to be disobedient. disobedient. But he learned what it cost to obey God in the flesh. That's the obedience he learned. He learned the reality of what it cost to obey these difficult commands that he gave. That it would be costly. People would suffer. People would struggle. People would have to exercise discipline. And he had learned that because he lived here in the flesh. And he knew he had set lofty ideals. He knew he had talked about a different kind of person. A person who was victorious over anger. A person who was victorious over lust, over dishonesty, over greed, over revenge, and over violence. These are things that go starkly against human nature. And he knew that he had called for such a character. He knew he had talked about a new kind of society where the tyranny of property was broken and there was a vital faith without hypocrisy. Then it was a little heaven on earth. He knew he had called for all of that. But he knew that there was a reality involved. And some people have said, is it real? And so they have completely ignored the Sermon on the Mount. And so they go to the epistles and they cherry pick their verses and they create their theologies that are convenient detours around Jesus' teaching so that you can be a member of most Bible-believing churches, and you can be divorced and remarried, you can swear oaths, you can go to war and kill people, you can accumulate wealth, you can, you can pretty well disobey everything Jesus said with clever theology to prove it. So he knew that realism would be a great problem. He knew that some people would not stick with it. He knew that there would be a mixture of the true and the false. There'd be all kinds of things that we would have to deal with. The weak and the strong, the true and the false, the faithful and the unfaithful, and those who do not stay with it to the end. And so he gives us four kingdom precautions so that we don't use these ideals in a way that becomes destructive. You know, Mennonites are idealists. One of the reasons we've had so many church divisions is we're all pursuing the perfect church. And we take these ideals and we beat each other over the heads with them sometimes and we create more problems. And instead of creating the ideal society, we create a nightmare. And Jesus did not want that to happen. So I have four points tonight. And if you look at Matthew chapter 7, we'll, we'll deal with those. The first thing that I want to talk about that Jesus talked about here is how to use these to correct an erring brother. And the, the first point I'm going to call, correct with compassion. And I want to read those verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So, what kind of judgment you have, it's going to come back. It'll boomerang. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull the mo out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is, I'm sorry, that's the next point. Correct with compassion. So the first question we're facing here is, how do I relate these teachings to fellow Christians, imperfect fellow Christians, okay? Our goal is Ephesians chapter 4, where it talks about the church building and building and building and building and building and building until we come to a perfect representation of Christ as a body. But you and I all know 
That's not the usual trajectory. The usual trajectory is people starting at a high point, they form a new church, and they love each other so much they could almost eat each other, and behold, they end up actually trying to do that. (laughs) And it goes this way. But if the Bible says it's to go this way, God never calls us to do something we cannot do by his grace. It is possible to move in the upward direction. But we're going to have to take, care, we're going to have to take careful uh, observation of what Jesus said. There have been hundreds of, of communal communities where they live in full community. Uh, during the hippie movement, there were many of them. And there have been hundreds of attempts to have really close community. They all have failed. To my knowledge, all of those have failed except the Hutterites. And if you learn to know a little bit about Hutterite life, that has not been without tremendous struggle. It's a beautiful ideal that can quickly turn into a nightmare. The Bible says all of the law is fulfilled in one word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. One word. All of the law. Everything in the Bible. One word. Love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. And we are all too familiar with what that looks like. Jesus understood what we do not see. He said, do not judge. Now, what does he mean here? He certainly does not mean do not discriminate because at the end of the chapter, he tells us we are to be very careful to discriminate people who live an undisciplined life, false prophetic personalities, lawless miracle workers, foolish people who do not build on Jesus' teachings. We're supposed to be very wary of all of this. So he certainly does not mean that we're not to discriminate. So we have to look at what the word judge actually means. It's the same word that is used when it said, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. That's the word that's used here. It could be, this could read, condemn not that you be not condemned. Now, that word condemn is an interesting word. Let's use the black pen and see if you can see that. I want you to look at this part of the word. All you have to do is change one letter of that part of the word. And that's what it means. What it means is to put somebody on trial, to sentence them, to punish them, to avenge them, to give a final verdict, to put them in an an irredeemable category. In other words, to put people down. The person who's functioning properly toward his brother goes out of his way not to put the brother down and raise himself above the brother. That's the temptation because that gives you status. If you can put somebody down and give the impression you're better, that gives you status. It's a tremendous temptation, but we call it self-righteousness. You are defining your righteousness as just simply being better than your brother. And that's what Jesus is is talking about. Now he does tell us we're to identify trees by their fruits, sheep in false uh, false sheep in sheep's clothing, but he's saying, do not condemn. All right? It's an attempt to raise ourselves by putting others down. And it's uh, this condemning that Jesus is telling us not to do. And I told you earlier in the week, we sometimes have to say words that are very hard for people to take. 
But we should study to make them as kind as we possibly can. We should study, the Bible says we're to correct with meekness, lest we're also tempted. And I think the temptation is self-righteousness. I don't know about you, but I have a tremendous temptation to be self-righteous in relation to the faults of my brothers and sisters, to think I'm better than they are. I'm being very honest with you. I have to deal with that constantly by God's grace. And I haven't always dealt with it successfully. And this is where all the trouble starts in the brotherhood. When people try to solve problems with that attitude. It's wrong for several reasons. Number one, it's the opposite of what Jesus did. John 3.17 says, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't do that. He could have. There was plenty here to condemn. But Jesus did not come to condemn the word, world. Jesus' judgment will never be personal. Never. Never will he judge people in a personal way. I'm going to read what he said. This might surprise you. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. This word. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. And it's not God, even. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that day. So Jesus is never going to personally judge anybody. God is never personally going to judge anybody. It's going to be reality, the word, that brings people into judgment. So when we, when we have this attitude, Jesus never had this attitude. He never did. You say, well, he, he really put down those scribes and called them vipers and hypocrites. And you, know, you ought to read uh, uh, Matthew 23. He surely did put people down. Did you ever consider how he maybe said those words? Because at the end of the chapter, he's weeping over the city. I think he's likely saying, oh, you vipers. Oh, you hypocrites. I think he was weeping while he said it. I don't think he was lashing out at people like we sort of have the impression maybe he was doing. I don't think he was. If he says we're not to condemn, then he never did. He was not doing that. All right? That's the first problem. The first problem is we're doing something Jesus never did. In fact, he never will do, and neither will God. It'll be the reality that they created that will judge people finally. And the word that they have spoken. Number two, it causes us to project our faults on other people. Romans 2, chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1 says, Who art thou that condemnest, it's the same word, judgest another, you do the same things. There's a tremendous tendency for us to project our problems on other people. So if a man is proud, he's especially sensitive to other people who are proud and puts them down. Remember a few years ago, we had a TV evangelist who got into moral trouble and another TV evangelist came on and just scored him out. I was in a, a, a barber's uh, office and this came on TV and the barber was an atheist. And he said, now, isn't he a beauty? There he was being exposed for his sin after he condemned the other person. It causes us to project our faults on other people. Liars are sensitive to people who lie and judge them. Proud people are sensitive to people who are proud and judge them. Lustful people somehow are more sensitive than others to people who are lustful and judge them because by judging them, their own sin looks better. The self-righteousness is something we really need to consciously consider and try to identify and deal with in our lives. Correcting carries a high risk of self-righteousness. That's why Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest thou also be tempted. 
Have you ever noticed that when others are set in their ways, they are obstinate? But when you are, you are a firm person. When your neighbor doesn't like your friend, he's prejudiced. When you don't like his, you're a good judge of human nature. When he takes time to do things well, he's a slowpoke or lazy. When you do, you're deliberate and careful. When he is mild-mannered, you call him weak. When you are, you call it graciousness. When someone dresses especially well, that person is extravagant, and when you do it, it's just simply good taste. When he says what he thinks, he's spiteful. When you do, you're simply being frank. Does that sound familiar? And of course, the worst thing about it, it's not just that Jesus never did it. And so when you do it, you're not being Christ-like. Number two, you project your faults on other people. You're more sensitive to the, their sin because you're having the same problem. And you're giving yourself away, actually. I knew a man who was so critical of every moral failure. He knew every moral failure in the community, and he could tell you everybody with names attached all through history. Now, it never came out what was happening in his life, but I always had to wonder, why is he so sensitive to immorality in the lives of other people? I mean, we should be sensitive. We should be trying to deal with it. Don't misunderstand me. But he used it with a real self-righteous attitude toward people. And it made me wonder what his problem was. Well, the last thing is it misses the goal, which is to correct the brother. That's the goal. The goal is to correct the brother. So what is the answer? How do we do this? Well, Jesus says, focus on your own repentance. Because likely, you're going to be struggling with self-righteousness. And you've got to get that beam out of your eye. Don't go talk to anybody till you, to all reasonable consideration of your own situation, you can say, I love this brother, I want to correct the brother, and I'm going to do everything I can not to put him down, but to lift him from his problem. Until you can do that, just stay home. I'm saying this to myself, all right? Quit beholding. The word there is staring. Quit staring at his faults. Maybe you should start to look at some other aspects of his character and how valuable he is and how necessary it is that he be redeemed so that he can be a blessing to the church. You maybe start thinking about him in that way instead of staring at this one thing in his life. It's easy to exalt self. We are always tempted to be setting ourselves up over other people. I'm reminded of the man who wrote a book on child training, and I laugh at this because if you want the best talks on child training, get the stuff I said before I was married. Okay? This man wrote a book on child training when he either had no children or they were very small, and the first title of the book was 10 Surefire Ways to Raise Spiritual Giants. And Brother Nathan, it was all in there. He could tell you how to raise spiritual giants. Well, the book went out of print, and about 10 years later, he decided to put it back in print. Now his children are 13 years old, or 10, 13 years old. And so he revised the book, and he put it back in print. But the second title was 10 Principles of Child Training. Hmm, a little bit different. And uh, 10 years later, the book was out of print again. But now his children are all grown. They've all left home. And he revises the book, and he puts it back in print. The last title was, A Few Child Training Suggestions. <laughs> That's the category I'm in at the moment. <laughs> but, you, but you see what's happening here. 
You know, he had all the answers and he was out to tell everybody else and put himself up and put everybody else in their place. And I've known so many people that had all the answers and were so critical of everybody else's child training. And then you watch the disaster because God cannot bless self-righteousness. And I tell people, if you need to be humbled, by all means, let God humble you or he'll do it through your children. Cleanse hypocrisy and self-righteousness. It's easy to act concerned. It's easy to glory in what makes you look good and puts others down. Examine your own faults. You know, when doctors do an operation, and Jesus chose the eye, by the way, which is probably the most delicate part of the human body. And if doctors do eye surgery, they scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub and scrub to make sure that their effort to help does not introduce pathogens that cause a greater problem. And so what Jesus is saying is, you scrub your soul before you go talk to that brother and be reasonably certain that there is no self-righteousness. There's nothing but love and genuine desire to restore. And until you can do that, just don't bother to go. And then once you've done that, gently correct your brother in the spirit of meekness. Self-righteousness sees the moat, the cleansed heart sees how to remove it, if indeed it was even there in the first place. It might have just been a reflection of your own being that was there. And this is important because that person is a valuable brother. He may be the only person in the congregation that when you have a problem, he may be the only person in the congregation that can help you later. And if he's eliminated, you'll be without the help that God actually provided, but you helped eliminate. That's serious. So here are some cautions. Hate, greed, jealousy, and hurts are contagious. And there are people who go around talking about those all the time. Avoid those people. Fight gossip. Somebody said gossip is that which goes in both ears and comes out the mouth greatly enlarged. Avoid gossip. Develop a readiness to compliment. We're so afraid we're going to make people proud. I don't think you will. David Detweiler, a teacher of mine, went to EMC many years ago when M.T. Brackbill's wife, M.T. Brackbill was the man who became famous for his uh, knowledge of the sky. He had a wife who taught literature. And my friend David Detweiler had her for a teacher. He said he never was around somebody who found as many reasons to compliment people as Mrs. M.T. Brackbill. If you wrote a good paper, she would read it to the class. If you made a good a comment in class, she would compliment you for the, for the comment. Whatever, she, she was just constantly complimenting everybody in her class. And he said once in a while, she had to be out of the class. She had to go somewhere, and there was a substitute. And people were even better with the substitute in their behavior than when she was there, because the worst thing that could happen would be for Miss M.T. Brackville to come back and find out that you had misbehaved. So let's learn to compliment people. Let's learn to uh, build people up. Let's compliment more than we criticize. And I am preaching to myself. I'm not, I'm not writing the book with the idealistic title. <laughs> I'm still working on all of this. This, this, this is really a, a challenging discipline to get this self-righteousness out of our lives. This idea, Jesus said we're to think of others better than we think of ourselves, and that is not our natural tendency. It's gonna take that unlimited grace we talked about this morning, or yes, this morning, to get that to happen. 
So the first thing he is, is talking about here is how we relate these idealistic teachings to our brother. And he's saying, do it with humility, without self-righteousness. And be sure you scrubbed your soul before you tackle those problems. The second thing we have is in verse 6. Here he's telling how to get this idealism to the world. How do we handle this idealism in a messed up world? Well, this is what he says. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, those without grace cannot practice these ideals. It's impossible. I told you that all of them require a miracle. And so if you go out there and start talking about these ideals and trying to put them on those people, you're going to be in trouble. They're going to make fun of you. Dating without fornication makes no sense to them. I hear it every day. If I talk about that, what? Well, that's what dating's all about. And they get angry and hang up on me. Not accumulating wealth. How much sense does that make to them? Not divorcing and remarrying. How much sense does that make to them? Not fighting our enemies in war. How much? None of that makes any sense to them. And we have to be careful about how we handle the realities of the gospel. In fact, one good example is Marxism. From each according to his means, to each according to his need. That's a gospel principle. That comes straight from the gospel. Marxism is a gospel heresy. Because they try to practice that, and it does not work. Because until selfishness is dealt with, this is my description of, of socialism. It's a few elites who convince everybody else to be equally miserable while they pocket the cash. And so if you try to apply a gospel principle, which Marxism tried to do, without the grace of God, it turns into a nightmare. They destroyed 100 million people in the last century between Russia and China. So you can create a horrendous tragedy. So Jesus warns us to discriminate. There are three kinds of people that Proverbs talks about. There's the simple person. He believes everything he's told. The story is told of a deacon who the, some brother came to him and he told his side of the story. And the deacon said, I believe you're right. The next day, the, somebody came to tell the other side. And he listened and he said, I believe you're right. And his wife was listening, and she said, honey, they can't both be right. He said, honey, I think you're right. <laughs> That's the simple person. He just believes whatever he's told. And there's a lot of hope for him, because he will listen to you without, criti without criticism. He'll just take in whatever you say, and God can use that to, to turn him around. Then there's the fool who has already made up his mind to reject. And as soon as you start talking, he's going to rebut what you say. There's that person. And then there's a scorner that is not only going to re reject what you say, he's going to try to destroy what you say and destroy you. There is no hope for him. And if you meet him, you're not going to have much success in trying to communicate these ideals. So we need to discriminate between these people and people who are truly open, which is the simple, and sometimes the fool. You can sometimes get something into them. I had an experience with this firsthand. 
the night after our, I mean, the Sunday morning after our wedding, we went, we, we stayed at Winchester, Virginia. We got up and I guess we went to the church with the biggest steeple. I was not aware of the fact that churches don't begin until 10 or 11 o'clock in those churches. And we went at nine o'clock to church. <laughs> well, it so happened, I guess we chose the biggest church we could find. We walked in and the pastor was having a Sunday school, or early morning Bible study. And as God would have it, he said, our study this morning is thou shalt not kill. Now, he said there are two views on this. He said the majority view is that under certain circumstances, Christians are not only, not only should, are permitted to kill, but they're obligated. And he talked about the just war theory. And he said, now, there has always been a minority view that it's always wrong to kill. He said, I'm sorry, but we don't have that view represented here today. Oh, okay. So I listened to the discussion, and after a bit, I raised my hand, and I said, I represent that majority, minority view. Oh, we're so happy to have you. It's just fortunate now we have somebody to represent this view. Would you tell us about it? Well, I talked for about two minutes, and I could tell they were, it made no sense to them. And they were disgusted, and they went right back to their discussion. So that's what we're talking about. I think now, if I were there, I would be much more judicious in the way I phrased my discussion about that subject and the way I handled it. Uh, anyway, so that's an example of what I'm talking about. So how in the world are we going to get these concepts across to people if they're going to reject them? Well, we need to go back to chapter 5, where it says, let your light so shine before me. Oh, it's not words first. It's light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see. See, we can believe and then see later if God shows us the wisdom of what, we, of what he said. But these people have to see first. You remember Peter at Pentecost did not preach his sermon until they were praising the Lord and all of a sudden people realized they were hearing in their own language and they said, what is this? And then Peter preached his sermon. One of the reasons I like the billboard ministry is they're calling us and asking us questions. But too many times we go out giving them information they weren't even asking for. Now, when nickel mines happened and those Amish people forgave that man who killed and, and treated his family unbelievably well, the world was saying, what is this? That was our opportunity, folks. I had a friend who was in London during that time, and he said that was front page news in London for one week. People were saying, what is this? That's how we get the world's attention. When somebody dies, the way we respond. When there's an accident and we forgive, or an intentional evil act and we forgive, and we go and do good to someone who has done evil to us, that's the time they're ready to hear the sermon. So oh, those are, somebody has said, we should wait until there is supernatu a supernatural phenomenon that raises the world's questions. And then we answer with, with a message. Now, we don't always have much time to do that when they call on the billboard, so how can I show them something? I try to show them that no matter how nasty they may be or how impossible their questions, they can at least get a kind answer. And maybe someday they will remember there was this person that I talked to pretty unkindly and I always got a kind response. That's something I can show to them, even though they can't see me. So... Witness with wisdom. Be careful how you relate 
these, to these situations. What do you say to a person who calls and says, why is divorce and remarriage wrong? Well, you could say, well, because Jesus said so. Or you can give a description of the kingdom and how families help to create this idealistic society and uh, paint that picture and then say, do you think that when this happens, that, that furthers this ideal? Well, no. So there are many ways we can present the gospel without saying you're going to hell and this is wrong and you're living in sin. And we need, sometimes need to say those things, but we need to be very careful how we handle the ideals of the gospel because they make no sense, believe me. They make no sense to the world. They're understood only by people who understand the grace of God. Well, but now you may be asking, how would I have the wisdom to know how to do this in relation to my brother or relation to the world? How shall I have the discernment for all these decisions? Well, the next thing is verse 7 and verse 8. It says, in fact, uh, verses 7 through 11. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone, let that sink in. Everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Well, the secret to this is persistence. I told you, those of you who are visiting didn't hear me say this, but I like the King James Version for this reason. There are other reasons I like the King James Version, the old King James Version, because they tell me the ETH uh, verbs, not all of them, but Usually, they mean continuous action. Everyone who continues to ask, everyone who continues to seek, everyone who continues to knock. Asking means you, you realize you have a need. Seeking means you put some effort into knowing. Knocking means you don't quit. The story is told of a young boy who went to a Greek philosopher and said, you're the wisest man I know. Can you tell me how to be wise? He said, sure, I can do that. They were standing on the beach, and so he started to wade out into the water, and they waded out and waded out until the water was up to about here, and then he took the young man's head and pushed it under the water and held it there. And he struggled and struggled and struggled, and he kept him under there until he was almost in bad shape, and then he let him up again, and he was extremely angry. Why did you do that? Well, he said, when you had your head under the water, what did you think about? Did you think about the money you were earning? Did you think about your vacation? Did you think about your hobby? What did you think about? Air. Oh, just air. Yes, just air. Well, when you want wisdom as badly as you wanted air, you will become wise. People who are wise are people who have persisted, that have struggled to learn these disciplines. And they made mistakes, I'm sure, and they've learned from them there's mistakes. But they have, they have a purpose. They have a purpose to know how to present the gospel. They have a purpose to know how to relate to their brother. They have pursued this with purpose and with persistence and with prayer and with begging God to help them understand. My dad is an example of how God gives things to people who don't really understand what they need. 
I hated school. That will surprise you, won't it? <laughs> My dad made me finish high school. I wanted to quit. And I wanted to take the ag course, which would have required no work. But he made me take the academic course, which is a college prep course, which I wasn't, he wasn't planning for me to go to college, but he, he wanted me, if I went to high school, he wanted me at least to make it worth his, my while. So I had to take Latin, and I hated it. I had to take chemistry, and I had to take physics, and I had to take all of those difficult subjects. What I didn't know was my dad was giving me the best gift because all those studies have served me well. I did not end up being a farmer. I ended up being more of a scholarly person, a teacher, and a writer. My dad gave me that gift against my will. And God gives us the best gifts. In fact, Luke says that whatever we ask is a request for the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that ministers any gift that we need from God. It shall be opened unto you, everyone that receiveth, everyone that asketh receiveth. And uh, some of you were not here, so I will put a little diagram on the board and I won't spend much time with it. What is opened unto us? Well, it's what I talked about when you weren't, some of you were not here. All the blessings in the heavenly realm, which is everything God has, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. He hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. It's just amazing the resources that God has to give to us if we ask. But he's looking for the person who's persistent, like that young man who was desperate for air. That's who he gives those gifts to. Well, that's number three. How do we have the wisdom? Well, we have to persist in asking and seeking and knocking, and we have to put effort into our prayers and persistence. And God will, he's promised to give us everything we need uh, for those things. Well, the next question is, the Sermon on the Mount is an awfully short sermon. It's the constitution to the kingdom of heaven, which is the greatest kingdom there ever was, and the biggest and largest and longest kingdom. And yet we have this short constitution that's half the size of the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> and there's a lot of things you say, well, there's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount about this. What shall I do? Well, in the U.S. Constitution, there is what is known as the Commerce Clause, sometimes called the Elastic Clause. And basically what it says, if Congress runs up against anything that's not specified in this document that they need to do, they have the power to do it. That's the Elastic Clause. It's been stretched pretty far. Our government has gotten involved in all kinds of things that they were not specified to do. Uh, so anyway... The exception clause is in verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now this is a very interesting verse and I chuckle every time I look at it in, inwardly. If I were looking for something that I knew was in every person, it would be a frame of reference for them to decide what is right, I'd look for some really good quality. But Jesus looked for the worst quality because he knew we all would have it, selfishness. This is selfishness 
Jesus used for the service of the gospel. What he's saying is, if you want to know how to treat the brother, indulge your selfishness to the nth degree, and then go do that to him. Does anybody think of a biblical character that actually did this? Haman. What shall be done to the man the king delights to honor? Of course, that's me. Get a crown, put it on his head. Get the robe, get the horse, get somebody to lead him through the streets and say, this is the man the king delights to honor. Haman, that is a fabulous idea. Go do that to Mordecai. <laughs> there it is. He says, if you ever come up against something and you can't think of a verse and there's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount, think the most selfish thoughts you can think about and then go do it. And you'll always be right. You'll always be right. This is selfishness turned on his head to fulfill all the law and the prophets. The gospel ideals are attainable to any person who takes this approach because when God sees you doing it, he pours out his grace. That's exactly what he wants. He wants you to treat people like you want to be treated. It lets us learn to relate the gospel to all men. And so I didn't mean for this to be a long session tonight. Let's not defeat our kingdom ideals by behaviors that defeat our message. Let's correct with compassion. Let's witness with wisdom. Let's perceive with prayer. And let's serve with self-sacrifice. The story is told once of a famous German artist named Herkomen, who lived in the Black Forest. His father was a woodchopper, but he was an artist. And he cultivated his talents until finally he moved to London and set up a studio there and became a famous artist and invited his simple woodchopper father to come and join him. And while his father was there, he decided to uh, learn to make some pottery, and he became very good at making pottery, and he became almost as famous as his son making pottery. But as he grew older and his hands became less steady, his pottery wasn't as good as it had been. And Herkomer would see his father go up to bed at night almost weeping because he doesn't, did not, was not happy with the work that he did. And so after his father was upstairs and sound asleep, he would take the pottery pieces while they were still green. He'd put them back on the wheel and he would make them perfect. And his father would come down in the morning and he would pick them up and look at them and say, well, I believe I still can make good pottery. That's what we're here to do. We're here to put our brother back on the wheel and help to make it into that which is perfect and beautiful. And if that's our attitude, and if we have scrubbed our souls of all self-righteousness, we can indeed take failures and make wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our Father, we thank you tonight for this really realistic part of this wonderful message you gave to us. Oh God, selfishness, self-righteousness, these are the enemies of the gospel. And you have given us wonderful teaching as to how to deal with them. Help us, Lord, in all of our dealings with people to regard people and do what they would want to have done to them, what we would want to have done to us. And help us, Lord, to build the church up. And I pray that Ephesians chapter 4 will indeed be the picture of our churches that grow more and more as a body into the likeness of Christ until people see that perfect, beautiful light 
of the gospel shining out into the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.